So Fritz, if you will come up and introduce our speaker. Good morning. Thank you. Um, boy, it's great to be back here. It's, it's great to be back to the mountain and, and this group of men and, and being with everybody. It's so good to see everybody again and blessings to everybody. Um, it's a real pleasure to introduce this gentleman to you this morning, our first speaker. He's a dear friend, their families. Uh, we love their family. Um, just a little bit about this guy. He is married to a beautiful wife, Anne. Um, uh, he's from Washington, D.C. He comes from Washington, D.C. He has a son who is at Azusa Pacific University in California uh, in his second year. I believe. Is that right? Yeah. And he has a daughter who is a captain in the Air Force who is in, a, in Afghanistan right now who is deployed with some Army Rangers. So we want to keep her in our prayers. He has another daughter and son-in-law who are, he, he is, his son-in-law is a colonel in the Air Force and they are deployed to Korea. So the Brown family, Tex Brown, is deployed all over the world, and um, but they're all united together in Christ. He is a true American hero. Um, he is a retired three-star um, Air Force general. Um, he's got amazing life story. He's an amazing speaker, and he's a great brother in Christ. Please welcome Tex Brown. Thank you, Fritz. I think this is my fourth or fifth high ground. Uh, it seems to me, I, my first invitation, I think it was the year, the year I retired, the year right after I retired. And I gotta tell you, first, I, I'm honored to even be here. I'm certainly honored to be up front. And, and I, I keep wondering why Jim and now Randy and keep asking me to speak. I'm going, you know, there's so many others that need to, but uh, so I'm thrilled to be in front of you. But I'm most thrilled to be here and be with you. So if you're here for the first time, i got to tell you, this could be a life-changing experience for you. It has been for me. As I was getting ready to, to pack and come, my wife says, uh, I said, you know, I just had a trip in Orlando last week. I've got to go to California next week. And, and actually, I'm taking a group just on the cell phone with a lady from Greece because I'm taking a group of 25 people to the Holy Land on a cruise here in about two weeks. And I said, you know, I don't know how I fit high ground. She says, You've got to go to high ground. It's, you come back so charged. It's the highlight of your year. I, you have to, I won't let you not go to high ground. <laughs> so she gets us pumped about uh, uh, what I receive up here uh, in, the, in the days that we're together. Uh, one last short story about, about high ground. It's, it's two years ago now that I was up here. And I came back and, and Ann says to me, says, something's really changed this time. I said, yeah, I, I'm going to seminary. I just got the call and the feel up here. So I said, so you need to pack up the house because we're moving to Dallas. Because to me, there's only one seminary. There's only one. So she says, uh, but we can't move. At that time, our daughter, the captain, who actually is in Iraq, not Afghanistan, but it's, she's in a combat zone. And uh, fortunately, she stays inside the wire. She's working with a bunch of Rangers and special ops guys who are, as she tells dad, I can't tell you what we do, but I know what they're doing. They're, they're killing bad guys. And, and she's the intel officer who helps find them. 
And then these, goes out at, these guys go out at night and, uh, and do what they have to do. Uh, but my other daughter uh, with the five grandkids, they, they, were, they were all still living in D.C. at the time. She says, we're not leaving <laughs> when all our kids and grandkids live here. I said, yeah, but you know, they're all moving this coming, so summer of, of 09. So we'll pack up and plan on leaving, and I'm going to start seminaries in, in fall of 09. Lo and behold, I go to a Christmas party, uh, and I meet a Dr. Todd Beal, who's in fact a Dallas grad. And he's a seminary professor at Capital Bible Seminary in Lanham, Maryland, which is just across, now it's, if you know D.C., it's across a bridge, <laughs> many bridges. But they had just recently opened a Virginia campus. And Capital Bible, as Dr. Todd Beal told me, now, don't get offended, DTS grads. He says, we're even more conservative than DTS. I said, no, that's, he says, you know, they've got a little liberal lately. <laughs> I said, I'm going to have to talk to Chuck about that. I, I don't. Capital Bible is essentially a baby sister to DTS. Half the grads are, are DTS grads. The president's a DTS grad. Chuck Sundahl placed that president in that seminary. So, in fact, uh, three weeks later, I was a student at Capital Bible. So I've now, uh, I took a course last, uh, last spring. I took a course this fall. I'm in a course right now. I thought about coming and, you know, and not preaching, but teaching something. I'm, and I thought, no, this, there's too many real preachers in this place. I'm not going <laughs> to. But uh, we're studying King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And, and then the, the Judah and Israel kings, as you know, the, they split. And uh, we are going to talk a little bit about Hezekiah this morning. Uh, on a side note, Solomon. Now, the Bible says, so it's got to be, the wisest man that had ever lived and that has since ever lived, King Solomon. And when you, you hear Solomon, you think of wisdom, don't you? You know, there's one area in his life that he was not wise. And it's another W. It's called women. You know how many wives he had? He had 300 wives. Oh, he had 700 concubines. This guy tried to handle 1,000 women. I, I, I don't know. I can barely handle one. but I. So I'm not sure how wise that was. Well, that's where I am right now. I'm, I'm in seminary. It's going to take me forever at, you know, three credits every semester. But uh, uh, I've got to tell you, I love being in class. I love studying the Bible. And it's, it was two years ago right here at High Ground that I came back saying, I've got to do this. That uh, it, it's, it's this group, you gentlemen, uh, the fellowship I felt here that led me to say, uh, it's time to get serious about, about what I'm doing with the Lord. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. What, what are we, what are you, what am I doing in our walk with the Lord? What are we doing as a country? In our walk with the Lord. I, I want to I use this morning this book, Red Sky in the Morning, by Dr. Bill Bright and John DeMoose. Now, it, it's about 10 years old. Uh, how many have ever read Red Sky in the Morning? Has anybody ever read this book? The tremendous book. It's as applicable today as it was 10 years ago when, when Dr. Bright wrote it. Of course, the title comes from uh, Christ in the New Testament. He told the disciples, and he said, you you can read the skies. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. You, you can look out and you can tell what's going to happen tomorrow. 
Can you see what's happening in your lives, though? Are you aware? So Dr. Bright writes this book, and it's a book for America. It's a book for you and I. It's a book for every American to read. Where are we going as a country? You can't know where we're going if you don't know where we've been and where we started from. So it's a history book. And I'm just going to kind of give you a, a, a short synopsis. We'll go through. Uh, I've taught this. It, it's actually, it, it, there's a pamphlet goes with it. There's a video series that can be taught in a Sunday school setting, in a, in a, in a men's Bible study, uh, over a six series. It's a wonderful video teaching series to, to go through with, with, with friends and believers and, and non-believers. Well, Dr. Bright steps us, he starts with, with the founding of America. I mean, we, you, you know, he goes right back to Columbus. You know, the Christopher Columbus, every place that he, he landed, and of course, he, his first landing wasn't on what we today call American soil. It was somewhere in the West Indies. But then he kind of made his way up through different islands. Every place he landed, what's the first thing he did? He planted a cross. Now, that's not in our textbooks today. It's not being taught in school. Christopher Columbus was a, a dedicated Christian. And he planted a cross and said, I now claim this land for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, we can go back to 1492 if we really want to go back deep in history. But no, no, let's look at, look more like, at America. The 1600, 1606, Jamestown, the founding of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the land we count today called Virginia. The Virginia Charter, 1606. We are here, quote, we are here to propagate the gospel of Christ to the people of this new land. That's why those Puritans came and began and settled what we today call America. The education uh, foundings of our nation. Most of you know that most of the colleges, first, they're probably the first 200 colleges, I want to say 190 or 195, were founded by churches. By, uh, uh, we've kind of lost sight of that today. Harvard, here is the rule and precept in Harvard by the first president. Let every student be plainly instructed, earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. I don't think we'd see that at Harvard University. In fact, that sounds more like a quote from DTS. William and Mary, a school right there in my state, founded in 1692. The purpose of the school, quote, that the Christian faith may be propagated to the glory of God. Now, I've got to tell you, William and Mary is a great educational, secular school. My son was being recruited to go to William and Mary to play baseball. He went down on a visit. Coach was really high on him. He spent day or two with the, with the ball team, and he came home and said, it's a great school, education-wise. Uh, it's in a wonderful setting, Williamsburg, Virginia. It was close to us. But he said, Dad, there's no Christian value there. I went out with the ball players after a practice, and, uh, and they all wanted to do is go drink beer and chase women. And, I mean, I've got to tell you, he likes girls, and he's a good-looking kid. But he wanted to be a part of a group that had, some, had higher quality than that. Thus, we sent him 3,000 miles across the country to go to Azusa Pacific because he wanted a school with Christian values. Mm -hmm. William and Mary 
started with Christian values. What happened? Yale. <laughs> we don't think of that as a Christian school. It was founded, and here was the main purpose of the school, to propagate in this wilderness the blessed Reformed Protestant religion with the goal that, quote, every student shall consider the main end of his study to wit, to know God in Jesus Christ, and answerably to lead a godly, sober life. Well, those, those words have kind of been lost at some of those universities, but that's how our nation was founded. In the 1700s, 1730 to about 1760 was the first great awakening. There was a great speaker named uh, George Whitfield. He was actually an Englishman. Of course, most people in America came from somewhere else. And, uh, and it's said that he maybe preached 18,000 sermons. And most of them were preached on what is today American soil. But uh, and he, he loved to start a group. And he'd walk in, get on stage, and of course... There was no microphone, so you, you can picture this guy with his big booming voice. And, and he walks in and looks out over the whole group of thousands and, and says, Lord, who's up in heaven with you? We all want to know. And he turns and the Lord says, who's asking? We here in, in, the, in this land want to know who's with you. Is it the Methodist? No. Well, a few folks in the crowd kind of murmur. The Methodists, of course. Is it the Presbyterians? No. How about the Episcopalians? No. Surely the Baptists are with you in heaven. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I'm now a Baptist. <laughs> no, 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 says God. Well, the whole crowd's pretty upset at this point. The Lord says, I don't recognize any of those names. None of those folks are here with me. What we have up here are believers in my son, Jesus Christ, as he shed his blood for them. That's all that's up here. Of course, Whitfield's point was even in the 1700s, we as a nation, as, 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 a, as a world, we'd gotten so lost in these practices, these human practices that we'd lost track of the church, that we had divided ourselves. So there was a great awakening that went on in, in the colonies at that time. And I got to tell you, it was, a, it was a part of that that led to the, the American Revolution. I'll give you a couple more quotes. Some of the uh, leaders of that American Revolution, of course, of course, George Washington. And we all know the story how he spent an hour on his knees in prayer, how he stood in front of his army before they go to battle and he'd take them down into prayer. <laughs> it's a little hard to do that today in uniform. One reason I had to, had to separate or retire because I was not willing to not speak about God and faith in uniform. And today the folks who, uh, who do that, in fact, uh, they will be retired immediately. George Washington, bless O Lord the whole race of mankind. Let the world be filled with the knowledge of thee and thy son, Jesus Christ. He says, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Patrick Henry, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now that's not to say that you must be a Christian to come to America. You know, if you go to Saudi Arabia, you better be a Muslim or be willing to become one or you can't stay. You're not invited. We are a Christian nation, but we also are a nation of people who say, come be part of us, pay your taxes, register, become an American, and you're free to worship whatever religion you want. But you need to know we are a Christian nation. We have lost sight of that. We've become much too tolerant about not even letting ourselves be the nation that we were founded to be. Thomas Jefferson, you know, he's often quoted by the, the non-Christians. God who gave us liberty and life and can give liberties of a nation to be though thought secure when we removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of people that these liberties are a gift from God. They're not to be violated, but you will suffer his wrath. Thomas Jefferson understood Christianity. Ben Franklin, another one that uh, non-Christians will say, uh, he, he wasn't a believer. Whoever shall introduce into public affairs the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world. Well, I could go on and on with, with many quotes from folks of the, that time period. We did have a revolution. We became our own nation. I mean, that's almost a miracle in itself. It's hard for us to really put ourselves back into the 1770s and 80s and think about these ragtag a uh, group of 13 colonies that took on the greatest empire in the world at that time, the British Empire. Now, the French will claim we won because they helped us. Uh, I, won't, I won't go to that argument. Uh, we had another Great Awakening. The second Great Awakening was in the, in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. We kind of renewed the spirit of, of, the, of the gospel of Christ in now what is the United States of America. And I got to tell you, it was part and partial what led to the Civil War. Abe Lincoln prayed that America would be forgiven for the sin of slavery. Uh, Abe Lincoln's got some wonderful quotes throughout this book. And uh, a strong Christian man who unfortunately never got to see an America that was free from slavery because, of course, he got killed shortly before the, the freedom was really enacted. Well, we had the revolution, uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution throughout the uh, uh, late 1800s, and America boomed. In fact, uh, between tremendous immigration, uh, you probably know people who have grandparents, or maybe some of you have ancestors who, who came to America to find a new way of life, because we encourage that. We, we still are the greatest immigration nation the world's ever seen. You know, there, anyone in the world can become an American. If you and I move to Germany, we can become a citizen. We can learn the language. We can't become a German. You can't move to Japan and become Japanese. I take mission trips to Mongolia. I've fallen in love with that country. 
It's a, it's a country that's about 19 years old now. Uh, they've, they've copied our Constitution, which is interesting because a lot of the founders of the Constitution would say our Constitution can't exist without the fundamental basis of Christianity, without the Ten Commandments. So a lot of people believe democracies can't exist without, without the moral compass that comes with a, a religious base. Mongolia doesn't know what they are. They, they, they probably would call themselves a Buddhist nation, but they haven't been Buddhist for 80 years because the communists kicked all the, in fact, they killed most of the monks. So they're a, a nation with, without a religion. They're one of the fastest growing locations for Christianity. Now, don't be fooled. Muslims are trying to get in there too. Uh, it's a hard language to learn, and I'm very weak at it. Eventually, I'd like to learn the language. I might end up going there full-time in a mission field. But I will never become Mongolian. But you can come to America. I don't care where you're born or, or what your ancestry is, and you can become an American. It's the only nation in the world that has that kind of uh, uh, situation with it. So this, this debate today about immigration... It's not that we don't welcome, weren't born and grew throughout, especially the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's just that it should be proper immigration. 1909, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Progress has brought us both unbounded opportunities and unbridled difficulties. Thus the measure of our civilization will not be that what we have done much, but what we have done with that much. I believe the next half century, so he's predicting between about 1909, he writes this, so 1910 to 1950s, 1960s. The next half century will determine if we would advance the cause of Christian civilization or revert to the horrors of brutal paganism. This is 100 years ago he wrote this. The thought of modern industry in the hands of Christian charity is a dream worth dreaming. The thought of industry in the hands of paganism is a nightmare beyond imagining. The choice between the two is upon us, America. Well, I... I think at that point, uh, we were still making some good choices. And certainly as a, as a country, we were still growing and building and, and, uh, and had a fairly strong moral compass. But even in 1909, Teddy Roosevelt obviously expressed some worrying concern about which way, which path would we lead. Uh, Dr. Bright describes in lots of detail the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And I'll throw some names at you. Darwin. Skinner, uh, Einstein, well, not Einstein, he was brilliant. But Einstein introduced the theory of relativity, which in the math world and in the, in the, uh, in the uh, statistical world was, 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 was important in, and certainly in the world of science. But in the moral world, which he didn't intend it there, but it, it, uh, it evolved into the moral world of, well, everything's relative. 
There is no absolute. And so then we move away from the absolute truth of the word. Very insidiously. There were other names, Sanger. that started leading us in the path of moral decay. We moved to the 60s. Actually, Winston Churchill, right after World War II, he says, America stands at the summit of the world. We were clearly the dominant power and empire of this entire world. We were the city on the hill. We were that beacon, the light. And we had the opportunity to shine God's grace, and the power of Jesus Christ to the entire world. I'm not sure we've missed that opportunity, but we certainly didn't grasp it. Because we let ourselves get into post-World War II era. 1962, the Supreme Court took prayer, Bible, and religious instruction out of the public schools. Now, I'm starting to tread on thin ice when I start talking about the Supreme Court. We're going to let Kelly go into more of that tonight. But he can talk to us about where we are today and the fight that he has to try to turn some of the the decisions made by us. You know, we might say they, the Supreme Court, they are us. We put them in position. You said, I have no authority. When you elect a president, you you are putting into position the next judges on the Supreme Court. Maybe one of the most important th- things we do in, in electing a president. It's not the four years they're going to serve. I mean, we're going to try to survive these four years. It's, it's the power to put into the courts those who make decisions that will last for a long time. 1973, Roe v. Wade. Kelly's fighting that battle today. The abortion ruling. 80s and 90s, guys like Dr. Kervolkian, in euthanasia. A fellow, Dr. Nelson Black, wrote, uh, when nations die, he wrote the top ten reasons that empires or nations uh, fall apart. Increase in lawlessness. Now he's talking about, this guy is a historian. He studied Rome, he studied the Greek Empire, he studied the, the Mongolian Empire. You ever heard of a guy named Genghis Khan and his grandson Kublai Khan? But all these empires fall. And generally they're not defeated militarily. This is how they're defeated. The ten symptoms that lead to the moral decay and disease and the fall of of the great empires of the world throughout all of history. Dr. Black. Increase in lawlessness. Loss of economic discipline. Ouch. Rising bureaucracy. Bigger and bigger government. Decline in education. The weakening of the cultural foundations. Loss of respect for tradition. Boy, here's one. Increase in materialism. The rise of immorality. You been to a movie lately? (laughs) Have you turned on TV? If you're my age... Try to think back, you know, I'm, I'm actually old enough that when I was a little kid, we didn't have TV. I remember when we got our first TV in the mid-50s, and that's a pretty big deal. 
What do we see on TV? Now, I know, 50s, that's a long ago. Some of these young people. Ozzie and Harriet. Father knows best. Uh, Roy Rogers. I mean, it was just all goodness and wholesome. Now, I grant you, I know that the cinema world is, you know, we've made huge technological uh, advances, but where have we gone morally in the cinema, in TV? You can't hardly turn on a program or go to a movie and not hear a cuss word. You can't go to one and not see skin. I mean, it was only in the 80s we still had Mary Poppins, and we had the greatest story ever told. Now, I'll grant you, we had the passion. And, and we've got some movie makers today trying to make wholesome movies. We need to go to those. We need to attend those, and we need to not go to those others. Decay of religious belief and the devaluing of human life was the tenth point made by Dr. Black. Devaluing human life. When we no longer care about the baby in the womb or the old person who is not of value to the, to the community anymore. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian was just the, the beginning. So what do we do about this? Well, I'll tell you, I think this goes beyond whether it be Obama, Bush, Clinton. I mean, this isn't, this isn't so nearsighted. It's, it's about a, a president. It's about a nation. It's about a people. It's about you. It's about me. And we have to do it one at a time. Each one. And we can't say, okay, I'm going to let somebody else do this. One at a time. We stand up and we look in the mirror. I'm going to take a stand. And then my brother beside me is going to take a stand. And then the one beside him. I got to tell you, I, uh, and I think I probably told you last year or the year before that I had a chance to spend 15 minutes with President Bush. My last job in the Air Force, I was assistant vice chief of staff of the Air Force. That's the senior three-star on the entire air staff. And I worked for the two four-stars on the air staff, the chief of staff of the Air Force and the vice chief. They're both four-stars. And, and they go off and give speeches and, you know, do lots of things. And so they, the assistant vice chief the senior three-star runs the staff. I push more electrons and push more paper than, you know, anybody in the Pentagon, at least for the Air Force. And, uh, and generally, I didn't go on the road much. Occasionally, we'd get three invites for speeches, and so there's one to go to, to San Antonio in the winter. Well, the chief, who was a Texan, he took that one, even though I would have loved that one. And, the, and then the vice chief, he takes the invite to go out to Las Vegas at Nellis Air Force Base, which is our fighter weapons school. Uh, and there's another invite at the same time. It's in Minot, South Dakota. So, uh, <laughs> Brown, you go to Minot, why not Minot? And uh, so that was, uh, that's kind of the job of the, this assistant vice chief, you know, pick up the crumbs. Uh, one enjoyable part, of, and I really enjoyed that job. Uh, one really enjoyable part was I was responsible and in charge of all the guys at Air Force One who fly to Andrews. And, of course, they fly the president, the vice president, and, and whenever they need a general officer to help uh, kind of uh, lend support because the White House staff, which can be pretty uh, bold, you know, everything's in the name of the president, uh, then they'd ask me to intervene, if, which didn't happen often. Well, I, I dealt with those guys quite a bit. And 
He said, sir, why don't you, uh, you need to come fly on Air Force One with us. I mean, you're the boss. Yeah, love to. Uh, we got a short trip. Uh, it's just a day trip going up to Boston and back. And uh, why don't you come along and we'll show you how we do things. And, and in fact, it's a good one because we don't have the whole press. You know, Air Force One is, is this big 747. It's got, it's got a room that's a, that simulates the president's office. It's got a, a room that looks like the, uh, the war room. And so the TV cameras can actually, it looks like he's sitting in a war room, but he's, he's on Air Force One. and got the seal. And then there's a whole area in the back that's just for the press. And uh, we can carry up to 100, 150 press. And this one didn't have press, which was really a nice trip. I didn't want to have to deal with the press. And, uh, so we fly up to Boston. Uh, President Bush gives a speech. And, uh, and on the way back, it's, it's evening. And it's fairly late. And, and he was prepared on the way up, doing a lot of business. But on the way back, it's now 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And he's really not, I mean, the president's always pretty busy. But, uh, and I'm up in the cockpit with the... Uh, with the pilot and the co-pilot. And the pilot turns to me and says, uh, hey, General, the president would like to see you. Can, have you got a minute to go down and see him? <laughs> nah, you know, I'm kind of busy up here. <laughs> I, I got to watch you guys, make sure you don't do anything wrong. Uh, yeah, I guess I can go down and see the president. So I go down the, the steps from the cockpit, and, uh, and he's right there at his door. And, uh, and actually, I'm in a suit because the, we, don't, we typically don't fly in uniform. It's trying to not to, to show being too military, too bold with, with the military. But I'll get to tell you, everybody on that airplane is military. I think they're all Air Force. Uh, well, he, as I'm coming down the steps, so I'm, I'm in a suit. Uh, he sticks his hand out and greets me, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm like a little kid. First, I, first thing I noticed is that he was a, just as tall as I am, and I didn't realize that he was 6'1", 6'2". I, I always pictured him to be about 5'10". In fact, we stood eyeball to eyeball. And for the next 10 minutes, I wanted to thank, thank him for being the Hezekiah of our nation today, of taking a stand, of being one who, even though at times it's by himself, stands up for his faith and lets people know what his faith is. And that's what I'm talking about. It's taking a stand for your faith. I got to tell you, he, he wouldn't hardly let me talk. He wanted to spend the whole time thanking me for my service to the nation. And ask him about family. He wanted to know about me, which I got to tell you, maybe other presidents would have been that way, but I can't imagine it. It just, it, it really highlighted to me what a humble man he is. It wasn't about his glory. I believe he was a Hezekiah. And we all know the story of Hezekiah. That long line of kings, I went through some of them. I mean, King David man after God's own heart, maybe still one of the greatest kings and greatest leaders in all of Israel. He had failings. Of course he did. He's human. We all have failings. We all have to turn to God and ask for forgiveness. But we had a series of kings after that that uh, had really forgotten who God was. Started worshiping other gods and Baal and putting up uh, statues. Hezekiah came in and turned that around. We need more leaders like George Bush who will be willing to stand up like a Hezekiah. We need to put on that full armor of God. That's a whole other speech I've given to you before. But Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Put on the full armor of God. It is a, it's a spiritual battle. Really. As well as a physical that my daughter is in this moment and other young men and women from our nation who are around the world fighting our battles for us. 
Dr. Bright tells us what we can do. He says, first, know what you believe. That's part of why I'm in seminary. I need to really know what do I believe. And I need to know it so that I can quote it. I need to know it because I need to put it to memory. I had a young Mongolian, uh, young. I had a colonel that I met over in Mongolia and the three-star general who is the entire chief of the, of the entire Mongolian military. Had a chance to be one-on-one with both of them. And they asked me, they said, we're, we're new believers. Now here's the chief of the entire armed force. I'm sitting one-on-one with him and he says, what can I do to be a better believer, to be a stronger Christian? How do I show my faith in uniform? And one of the first things I said to him, commit verses to memory. Memorize parts of the Bible, things that mean something to you. Put it in your heart. Dr. Bright talks about committing things to memory. Commit yourself to personal holiness. Put on the armor of God. Work for the unity of other believers and churches. We have got to recapture the church. Not the denominations, the church. We got to get rid of our differences. We got to put aside those human practices, whether it be baptism or communion or however we do these differences. I mean, we have to do it the same way, but not that that stand in the way of unity of the church. We're the bride of Jesus Christ. We got to confront the culture. Which means you got to be bold. Dr. Bright says, become involved in local and national politics. At least you've got to go vote. Now we're back to, you don't like the guy that's the president? Or some senator or elected official? I tell you, I can't believe the people of Massachusetts who elected that Republican. I want to call him my cousin. He's a brown. He must be. You know, he's got to be related somewhere. That's a bold move that they took. We need to be like that. Help fulfill the Great Commission. Train others in evangelism. Be a Paul. Find a Timothy. And then help him become a Paul to his Timothy. Well, finally, let's go to the Word. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Most of you have it committed to memory. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. I got to tell you, he was speaking to the people of Israel. But today, He's speaking to the Christian nation of this world. If my people, we are the people called by his name. His name's not American. His name is Christian and Christ. And we are those people. And if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, he will heal our land. Nothing is impossible with God. Amen.